This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Would you pray with me before we get started? Heavenly Father, as we just sang, uh, I pray that you would direct us by your truth, that you would uh, meet us where we are with the fullness of your grace, that you would pour the, the fullness of your word out into our hearts, and that uh, we would see your love and your mercy and your grace, and ultimately, Father, that you would use that to, to grow our desire to glorify you, grow us in our Christ-likeness, and make us a better image of him. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. The hymn we're going to study this morning uh, contains truth from multiple scriptures. So unlike past weeks, we're going to bounce around a little bit. I'll have those up on the screen if you want to. Or if you, if you want to go in your Bibles, we'll begin in Romans chapter 3. If you want to start heading there. There are varying opinions, but it appears that at minimum, Charles Wesley wrote somewhere north of 5,000 hymns. Some of them recorded, published, some of them not. Charles and his brother John, John would eventually be the founder of the Methodist Church, were both in the service of the church at very young ages, but Charles and, and John would both later confess that Everything they did uh, when they were young, until they were older, was, was pretty much just self-serving. They were commissioned to go uh, by the Church of England uh, to America as missionaries in 1735 to the then colony of Georgia. However, their, their lifeless, piety-filled message was not well-received. And so they returned to England discouraged and confused. But fortunately, that failure served as the means to propel them towards a genuine spiritual renewal. On his return to England, Charles began associating with a group called the Moravian Church. That's a, it was a mainline church back in those days because they had impressed him, uh, the group of them that was in America while he was there. But as his... As a result of his hanging out with those guys, what became clear to Charles was that he was not a believer. It became clear to him that he did not know Jesus personally and that he needed to surrender his life to him completely. And so Charles wrote in, on the day of his salvation, he says, in his journal, is May 23rd, 1738. He wrote this. I paraphrase the old English for you a little bit. He said, the last thing the enemy wants is for us to tell of what God has done for our souls. In his name, therefore, and through his strength, I will perform my vows to the Lord of not hiding his righteousness within my heart. And later in that entry, he concluded this way. So I gave myself up, soul and body, to him, and I began a hymn upon my conversion in celebration of the amazing love I have now come to know. Originally titled Free Grace, this praise of Charles would become the refrain of his very first hymn that we're going to study this morning. We know it better as And Can It Be. 
And that refrain that most of us knows goes, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So where I want us to begin this morning with this hymn by Charles Wesley is, is not just joining him, but agreeing with him. Because not only is this question, the question that kicks off this hymn, can it be and can it be, but that question, can it be, should be, it's a question that should be eternally on our hearts. We should constantly wonder. Not in the sense of if, but in the sense of wow. The first stanza begins. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued. The question of how we could gain an interest in Christ's blood should be a question that is always on our hearts. Think of it this way. I want you to picture yourself in heaven. Your flesh has been removed. You have been stripped of, of all the, the sinful nature inside of you. What will you hate and what will you love? What will you care about and what will you ignore? In other words, how different will you be from now? What will be different about you? How, how different will your thoughts be than they are now? And I ask that question because I would venture to guess that most of us generally picture ourselves in heaven as kind of the same but just better. We don't have those, those impulses anymore. You know, we're just more focused. We don't have that draw to do, you know, something wrong or we're able to fight it better. However, the simple fact that we can't comprehend how we will be so completely different when we are relieved of sin that other people won't even be able to recognize us if they saw us again, physically, is evidence of how much we underestimate the depths of our sin nature. The biblical answer to the question of what will be different about you in heaven is, I don't know because I cannot fully comprehend myself apart from sin. It's like asking a fish to describe what it's like living outside of water. Every contract, every law written today has a clause in it called a severability clause. Man. It's a clause that basically says this. If any part of the contract is found to be illegal or unlawful, that part can be severed from the contract, but the rest of the contract stays intact. So picture you were signed a contract for a really lucrative, good federal job. Now, we know that's make-believe, but just pretend you did that. And in that contract was a severability clause. And, and what, what you didn't notice when you signed it was there's buried in the fine print a clause that said, you can't be a Christian to work at this job. Well, that's illegal, but you still want the job. So the severability clause says that you could take that part of the, of the contract out and the rest of the contract would remain valid. However, here's the thing. The law of God does not have a severability clause. Paul told us in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 10, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Meaning, if you plan on getting into heaven by following the law and being a good person and doing it right, you are under a curse. How is that? Well, because he quotes, 
It says, because for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Even more clearly, James wrote in James chapter 2, he just said it outright. In verse 10, he said, for whoever keeps the whole law, the whole thing, but fails in one point, has become guilty of it all. Let that sink in for a minute. According to Scripture, even if all you've done is stolen a nickel from your mother's purse or you know, had a bad thought about someone or you know, told a little white lie, according to Scripture, it doesn't matter. In God's eyes, there is no difference. You are guilty of violating the whole law. In God's eyes, you might as well be a murderer. Now, the reason that that is true is not because you're a murderer. The reason that is true is because in God's economy, there are only two types of people, perfect and not perfect. That's it. So whether you murder someone or tell a white lie or, or uh, you know, accost someone or, 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 or steal a nickel from your mother, it doesn't matter. You have become imperfect, and in God's eyes, that's all there, there is. In fact, after talking about this in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He, he told us how to be acceptable to God. He said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's all you got to do. If you want to get into heaven, you must be as perfect as God. And that's the qualifier. You are either perfect or not perfect. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, he said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. We don't, we don't even understand the whole thing. No one seeks for God. No one has thought God was a good idea, and so I'll believe in him. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's a heavy verse if you just let it roll around in your mind for a while. So you can see how profound Charles's question is. If you want to elevate your understanding of what Charles means when, when he writes, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let me give you a, a taste of the waters that we're swimming in. What do you think of when you think of the word covetous? I would assume that you, you think of that desire to have something that you don't have. Maybe something somebody else has. It creeps up on you every once in a while. Uh, that would be nice, you know, but it's not this consuming, you know, thing that you have. However, what the ladies learned in, in Bible study this week was that the biblical definition is far more insidious. I'm just going to give you a few examples. Slavery is born out of coveting in Scripture. It's the idea of, of not just coveting someone's things, but coveting their worth like wanting to own someone's self-worth for yourself. In addition, coveting is frequently linked with adultery and cruelty in Scripture. It's the idea of wanting something from someone else and you don't care if it hurts them, like their wife, something like that. But most importantly, what we see as maybe a minor issue of coveting, the Bible is not just a minor issue of coveting that pops up every once in a while. In Scripture, coveting is always identified as blatant idolatry. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says this in black and white. For you may be sure of this, 
Listen to the group that coveting is included in. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, in other words, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let me help you identify the truth in your heart that I'm trying to describe. And let's look at coveting from the other side of the glass. Not wanting something that you don't have, but losing something that you do. Same concept, other side of the coin. Let me see a show of hands. Who in here has had anything stolen from them? I have. Do you remember those feelings that you had? The anger, the, the, the feelings of maybe even fear, that feeling of being violated. Remember those feelings? How often have you felt that way about someone talking about God in a bad way? How often have you felt that way about someone trying to take God from you? Here's where the Bible says those feelings come from. That feeling of being violated and anger and, and, and just rage of wanting to get back. The Bible says all those feelings we have when someone steals from our house or our car or locker or our purse or wallet or whatever, they come from uh, because someone has messed with our idols. Basically, the Bible would say that those feelings we have of, of being angry and, and feeling violated that someone took our stuff, it, it's, it's us sitting with the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai and we're angry because someone took our golden calf. God's sitting right there. The point is this. The reason that can it be is a question we ask so infrequently is because we think of, of something as simple as coveting. As we think of it as just something like a mischievous child. When in reality, Scripture would say that, that perhaps like Gollum from the Lord of the Rings is a better personification of we, what we see as just a really kind of minor thing that pops up every once in a while. So, so just unpacking the simple issue of coveting, it exposes that what we think is a minor issue that pops up every once in a while the Bible calls a raging, adulterous, idolatrous monster in our hearts that says, God doesn't satisfy me. Now, add on to the issue of something like covetousness that, that, that we don't think is that bad. All those things we actually do think are bad that we've done. And then add on to that the reality that every bit of our sin is far worse than we can imagine. And perhaps we're ready to start joining Charles and asking, can it be that I would gain an interest in my Savior's blood? We are far too unaware of our sin. We are far too often excusing of our sin. However, the reason we want to keep that question to keep asking that question, let's say, is, is because there is an answer. How can it be that I would gain an interest in my Savior's blood? There is an answer to that question, and the answer is yes. The second stanza, Charles explains this. He says, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Yes, it can be that you can gain an interest in your Savior's blood because He wanted you to. Because of His mercy, not because we asked or even cared. Simply because of His infinite grace, Jesus left the throne room of heaven and bled and died for people like you and I. 
Philippians chapter 2, you most, most of you are familiar with that, it probably captures this best when Paul writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus emptied himself or, or made himself nothing, your translation might say, in order to become a servant but not just a regular servant, an obedient servant, a servant whose master said, die, and he said, okay. That kind of servant. Listen, Scripture tells us that before he even made the world, he already had the title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords and, and Mighty Counselor and, 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 and Prince of Peace. He already had all of those titles before he created the earth. That didn't change. What he did was he just added a new title. Now he's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and human. Baby. He didn't cease being God. He just added humanity to his existing godness. Unless we think that that, that is something like, you know, that, that itchy sweater that your mother made you wear for family pictures that you tore off as soon as the guy said, I think I got that one. It's not like that. Jesus did not return to heaven and then pull off his uncomfortable humanity just as fast as he could because he didn't like it. No, that's not what scripture tells us. The Bible tells us that Jesus will forever keep his humanity. He didn't shed his, his, his itchy man sweater so that he could go back to being full-time God. Listen to this. Jesus loved us so much that he will forever be one of us and God at the same time. Forever. He took on humanity for you and I. And he did it perfectly without sin. He deserved everything, yet he owned nothing. He created everyone, yet he commanded no one. He ruled over everything, and yet he served everyone. He was not taken advantage of, but allowed men to nail him to a cross when he deemed the time to be right. And he chose to be forsaken and separated from God the Father, something he had never been experienced before in, in all eternity past for a crime he didn't commit. So when Charles Wesley says in the second stanza, "'Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me." Let me pull on the majesty of that phrase just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul wrote, "'And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, not poor, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
Listen, let Jonathan Edwards say what Paul just said a little differently. You contributed nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. So the truth that lies behind Charles's line, tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me is this. You didn't pursue God. You didn't think he was a good idea. You didn't come to your senses. You didn't finally recognize the logic and the wisdom of the cross. No, in fact, it was the opposite. You were hostile toward God and wanted nothing to do with him. But God, but God, but God, because of his great mercy, tracked you down. He violated your free will and he made you alive in Christ. He said, nope, you're not going to hate me anymore. You're going to be covered by the blood of Christ, even though you don't want to be. And I'm going to change your heart so you like it. This mercy truly is immense and free. But listen how Charles describes that event in the third stanza. He says, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. As we saw earlier at the beginning of the service, he's relating this to, to, to Peter's escape from, from, from prison in Acts chapter 12. And, and, and like Steve said, uh, uh, Herod was going to kill him, but he had him in prison. And before he could, uh, in Acts chapter 12, it says, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, that's Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And just as Steve was explaining earlier, the angel had to tell Peter to get dressed and put your shoes on. It's like he's talking to a five-year-old. Now think of your salvation instead of just a story. Chained in a cell, dead asleep in this case, but we were dead. Chains fell off. And so, so we put on his sandals, it says in the middle of verse 8. And he said to him, the, the angel said to Peter, wrap your, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know what was going on. They passed the first guard, the second guard, the gate opened by itself. They went out alone into the street. And when Peter finally came to his senses, he said, I'm sure the Lord sent an angel to do that. Good guess, man. We were imprisoned by our sin and left helpless in, in the corrupted darkness that it created. As much as Peter had to do with getting out of jail, we had to do with our sin or with our salvation. We didn't take our chains off. They fell off. We didn't free ourselves. We were escorted out of the darkness by Christ. What else could one do if that happened but rise, go forth, and follow him? So the answer to the question, can it be that I, a sinner, should gain an interest in my Savior's blood is a resounding yes. Yes, we can. You can gain an interest in your Savior's blood because he came to us when we couldn't and more importantly did not want to go to him. You can be a part because, because he gave up what he deserved and voluntarily endured what we deserve. And now our chains have fallen off and, and, and we are free to live our lives for him. And that love, 
That grace, that mercy, that sacrifice was so powerful that now look what Charles understands. Look at the change between his, his tone in stanza one and stanza four. It's no longer, can it be that I should gain? No. After reviewing what God has done in Jesus Christ, look where Charles is now in, in the fourth stanza. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. These are all statements. The questions are gone. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the, the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Think of the audacity of what he's saying. I walk up to that throne full of confidence and I get my crown that, 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 is, in, that is mine in Christ because it's mine. It's insane. That's the life-changing power of God. It's the power of the cross. It's the power of forgiveness. It's the power of grace. It takes, and can it be, and transforms it into boldness in front of the throne. And, and this confidence that he's talking, it's not pride. It's glory. It glorifies Jesus for us to be so confident about our forgiveness and our salvation and our reward and our security in him. It glorifies him that we would boldly approach the throne to claim what is ours because of his merit, not ours. It's not confidence in ourselves. No, that would be pride. It's confidence in Jesus. It's confidence in the power of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's glorifying to him. I want you to see this truth unfold out of Paul at the end of Romans 7 and the beginning of Romans 8. It's on perfect display. Paul says in the very last verse of Romans 7 in verse 24, he comes to this conclusion, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's lamenting over his sin that he just cannot escape. And the more he grows, the larger his understanding of his sin nature grows. The very next sentence. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then the very next verse in Romans 8, chapter 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the space of two sentences, he went from wretched man that I am to there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Follow his progress through this is what we're talking about. First, as we grow, like I said, we don't grow in our confidence in our own works or our own ability or our own worth. That's not how a Christian grows. It's the opposite. As we grow spiritually, we find ourselves closer to Paul saying, what a wretched man I am. But look, the only thing that that cry serves is to amplify another. The louder our cry of worthlessness is, the louder our cry of thanks be to God becomes. And then in turn, the louder that cry of thanks be to God becomes, the more confident we are of the truth. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that flow? This is not self-serving, self-pity. This is Christ magnifying, glorifying recognition of sin. What a wretched man I am leads to thanks be to God. And then thanks be to God leads to, to confidently saying that there is no condemnation for me and I can boldly approach the throne. Listen, there are many in this room who would find their, their weaknesses overwhelming. Everything they, they do, they just think they're a failure. That failure is crushing. Their sin is just devastating. You, you feel like it's unbearable. And to that I say, awesome. 
That's exactly where you should be. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, do not for one second let that sin defeat you or debilitate you or render you useless. And certainly do not allow our enemy, the devil, whose name is liar, deceive you into believing that that's what God sees. As one of his chief lies is to tell people who have been washed by the blood, he doesn't love you. Christ wasn't enough. You need to do a little bit of work on your own. You need to supplement what Christ did in order to be really accepted. No, on the contrary, if you believe in Jesus, own your sin and allow it to amplify your praise to God. Glorify God as confidently with your lungs as you do with your life. In other words, be confident in your standing before God. Be confident in the boldness of your salvation. It, it, it looks like a freedom from shame that, that confuses the world. It looks like a light yoke. It looks like an easy burden that allows you to accept who you are while at the same time be confident in the new creation that Christ has made you. That can be through the sacrifice of Christ. Brothers and sisters, let this hymn stick this truth to your soul. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We never want to lose the staggering shock of how we have gained an interest in our Savior's blood. While at the same time, in the very next breath, remembering what Christ did, we never cease crying out with praise and glory because clothed in perfect righteousness now that is not our own, we boldly approach the throne. What else is there to say but amazing love? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of music. I thank you for how you take these truths and, and have used men throughout the centuries to, to weave them into a mechanism that, that we can remember. Father, I, I pray that you would take this simple yet profound truth and sink it deep into our souls, that we are wretched men and women who have been saved, and the sacrifice of Christ was so strong, it was so powerful and so mighty, that we can now approach you boldly. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done. I pray, Lord, that you would, you would use this truth grow our, our, our praise and our worship in our lives for Christ. I pray you'd make this truth a reality in our hearts that would cause us to want others to have it. Let us exhibit the freedom that your word talks about from works, the freedom from shame. Let us exhibit the light yoke of, of the glory of what Christ has done in our lives for us. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.